0: That's heritageradio.network.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is supported by Bon Bon, a charming neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, serving eclectic cuisine with Midwest roots.
0: This week on a special bonus episode of Meat in 3, we find out why the bacon, egg, and cheese, that classic bodega sandwich, is popping up on menus of New York's trendiest restaurants.
2: We did a few iterations of it, and I was trying to fancify it. We tried the sausage, egg, and cheese, and then we tried
0: to put sharmoula sauce on it, we used feta cheese, and we just like taking ingredients of the Mediterranean, if you will, and try to infuse it. But uh, for me, it was like a car wreck. Tune in to hear about the wild journey of the bacon, egg, and cheese from deli to fine dining on Meat in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome professor and culinary historian, Jennifer jensen Wallach. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Jennifer about what gastronomy tells us about ourselves. Redefining African-American Culinary History, and we'll hear Jennifer's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, in our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia, As you might have picked up, Julia named her foundation the Julia Child Foundation for gastronomy and the culinary arts. This was not by accident. First of all, she didn't want it to be all about her. And second of all, it's because she wanted to signpost that the foundation was about gastronomy and the culinary arts. Now, I think most of us are good on what culinary arts refers to, everyone working in and writing about food and drink. When we pivot to gastronomy, that part gets a bit murkier. Now, my simple answer is, it's the intellectual side of food, less about the making and consumption, and more about the anthropological and historical aspects. Okay, all you doers, don't tune out yet. It's actually a lot more fascinating than these brainy terms may sound. Just as we dived into exploring gastronomy back in episode 43, In conversation with Professor Megan Elias from BU's gastronomy program, which Julia helped found, we're diving back in with another culinary historian, Professor Jennifer Jensen Wallach from the University of North Texas. See, already, not what you were expecting to hear. The foundation recently funded a doctoral fellowship in food studies at the university under Professor Wallach's direction. Jennifer joins us today to pick up the gastronomy conversation and fill us in on the deep thinking about food coming out of Texas. She is professor and chair of the Department of History at the University of North Texas, where she teaches African American history and United States food history. She's authored or edited nine books, including most recently, Every Nation Has Its Dish, Black Bodies and Black Food in the 20th Century America, and Getting What We Need Ourselves, How Food Has Shaped African-American Life. She's also the co-editor of the University of Arkansas press series, Food and Foodways, and a board member of the Southern Foodways Alliance. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer.
3: Hi, Todd. It's great to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about what we're doing in Texas.
2: We're excited to hear about that. I think Texas has been underrepresented on the podcast, and we're fixing that right now. So, on that exact note, give us a little intro or overview of what's going on and what you do at the University of North Texas and about your your role in the, in the history department as a professor and the different aspects you cover.
3: Okay. Well, we are a research university, and we're in the Dallas metro area. We have more than 38,000 students, so we're a pretty large university. And one of the things that's really exciting about North Texas is that we actually have a lot of faculty working on research related to food. Um, We have about 35 faculty from five colleges interested in food studies on our campus. Um, And what's great about our group is our group contains people like me, food historians, who think about the meaning of food in the past. But we also collaborate with people in hospitality and tourism, people who actually prepare food, think about how it's sold and marketed. We have philosophers who think about food ethics. We have chemists and biologists who are actually working on questions related to developing new foods, and nutritionists and other applied scientists who think about how food affects the human body. So food studies is a really big tent for us. Um, as, however, as we kind of are trying to figure out you know, what's, what's kind of a question or a concern or approach that unifies us, um, one of the questions that's emerging is we're trying to use our collective knowledge and our different disciplinary perspectives to think about a more sustainable food future and to ask some critical questions about um, how the way we eat affects our bodies, affects our planet, affects animals. And um, one of the things that might be surprising to people, um, because I know people have their Texas stereotypes, I'm not from Texas, I did too, is that UNT has um, the first all-vegan cafeteria on a college campus called Mean Greens, which serves um, plant-based, cooked-from-scratch food to thousands and thousands of students every year. So um, we have kind of an innovative you know, entry into questions about food. And so we're not only asking these research questions, we're not only, you know, feeding our students this plant-based food, um, but we're also working really hard to develop a food studies curriculum. Um, We have a food studies undergraduate certificate and very unique to the history department that I chair, um, doctoral students in our department can actually study food history and um, do doctoral work on the field of food history.
2: And then, so your specific expertise as a historian is in African-American history, right? And then you kind of melded, um, you sort of do stuff, I assume, in that realm that isn't specifically food-related, or maybe it is all intertwined. Now tell us about that.
3: Okay. Well, um, you know, I'll spare you all from hearing about my dissertation, (laughs) but my dissertation was not about food. I know enough to know that I, I shouldn't go on and on about my dissertation. It wasn't about food. But it was about autobiographies and about how people experience different historical moments. And the more I started thinking about what it felt like to live in a different historical moment, the more I started to think about bodies and physical sensations. And once you start thinking about bodies, I mean, it's very natural to move on to thinking about food and what food tells us about the past. But the sort of concrete moment in my studies where I knew that food was something I was going to need to think more about was when I was reading an autobiography written by Merle Evers, who was the wife of assassinated um, civil rights leader um, Medgar Evers. He was head of the NAACP in Mississippi, and he was assassinated, shot down in the driveway of his family home while his wife, Merle and children were inside. So, obviously, this is the most horrific, traumatizing, terrible thing that could ever happen to a family. And Evers writes about the investigation after this murder. And one of the the things that happens is some of the bullets went inside the house and they landed in the kitchen. And they landed on the counter next to a watermelon. And, you know, for people with familiarity with sort of American food culture, they know that African Americans are often depicted as having this sort of outsized appetite for watermelon in U.S. popular culture throughout history. And It's been a really painful, derogatory stereotype. And Evers said that even though she was so traumatized about her husband's death, one of the thoughts that went through her mind is, oh, my gosh, I don't want the white policeman to see that watermelon on my counter. And that stayed with me because I thought these stereotypes, these ideas about food and what food means about who we are, what food means about who people think we are, is so deep and so painful that when the worst thing possible happens to you, that these ideas about food and identity still come to your mind. So from that moment on, I thought, I've got to think more about food if I'm going to think about American culture, American history, the African-American experience. And the interesting thing as a historian is once you ask yourself that question about food, it's everywhere. You know, I hadn't seen it when I wasn't looking for it, but once you start looking for it, it's everywhere. So um, now, you know, I've had no looking back. I mean, since then, I've pretty much just written about U.S. food history.
2: And so that, that's a great, albeit tragic, example of what I was going to ask you next is so maybe using the Murley-Evers example and then moving sort of extrapolating from that. What have you found that and what do you teach your students that in studying how we eat, how does that tell us more about who we are?
3: Well, like a lot of people interested in food culture, I've often batted around that aphorism. You know, we all know it. Tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are quite a bit. Although I actually do so a little bit less these days. Um, I mean, I think that we say that so often because there is a very essential core truth there. I mean, for starters, the food that we eat literally does become a part of us, right? So we actually are literally composed of the things that we consume. And food choices, we know, tell a lot of things about our histories and about our identities, Um, one of the things that I like to do in my food history classes is to ask my food history students to analyze their family's Thanksgiving meal or if they don't celebrate Thanksgiving, another holiday, and to kind of decipher what that meal tells them about the story of their family. And it's a wonderful class where they come back with these really rich insights and talk about the way that the foods they eat connect themselves to, you know, deceased relatives, to stories about immigration, migration, Um, to lots of times stories about changing economic fortunes. So it's a really rich discussion, and we all leave that classroom um, with a lot more intimacy, a lot more sense that we know each other. But as the conversation progresses, we always actually come to the conclusion that some of these food choices are less reflective of reality and maybe more aspirational. That sometimes maybe what we eat doesn't tell us who we are, but sometimes maybe it tells us who we would like to be, who we wish we were. And holidays especially, right, because in the holiday you're performing something. You know, that's your chance to be your best self, a different self. So in a lot of ways you eat things that are more expensive or more elaborate than maybe you would another day. And
2: yeah, no, and certainly—and in, in, that's interesting that you say that, because certainly in, in certain food cultures, I'm thinking, at least in my mind right now, Middle Eastern food cultures, when you go to someone's house and you're invited there, you will be given—it's true in Russian culture, too—you're you're given an abundance of food, and you're given— generally a misimpression that that's how they eat all the time or that you know there's a certain cultural display surrounding food and generosity and hospitality right that's quite different than any kind of day-to-day normality for the host
3: absolutely and there are often disagreements about what's supposed to be served i mean one of the things that i think is the most fun to talk about among my students is you know every year i hear about family debates about cornbread versus wheat bread you know dressing or very heated here in Texas, pumpkin versus sweet potato pie. And I also hear more and more and more lots of stories about families that have sort of, for them, traditional ways of eating that come into conflict with college students who come home from college maybe wanting to eat, you know, a a different diet to be gluten-free now or vegan or vegetarian. And what's interesting is these family controversies are kind of funny on one hand. You know, we always laugh about the pumpkin and sweet potato pie. But for the people embroiled in these disputes, um, something a lot greater than nourishment at stake. Because a lot of times, you know, people feel like rejection of their food's a rejection of them. So I f- feel like what's interesting about this question is that we see that culinary identities are renegotiated, you know, who you are at one moment might not be who you are at a different one. And, you know, we code shift, we eat different kinds of meals with different people. So I think, you know, it's actually a pretty complicated question. Um, one example that comes up all the time, too, in my class is, you know, we talk about how food maybe is associated with gender sometimes. And so invariably I have a, a female student who will confess that if she goes on a date, she might order a salad, even when she'd rather maybe have something more hearty, maybe some meat, and that's because in her mind this is a more feminine food. So in that instance she's not a salad isn't who she is, right? But it's who maybe she thinks she's supposed to be, or maybe who she feels pressured to be. So I think these things are complicated.
2: No, that that's definitely a a, a fascinating thing. Yeah, I think there was some discussion on social media about Um, I think it was in regard to actresses and saying that why on social media are so many actresses or in interviews depicted like uh, actually doing the opposite of what you're talking about, digging into a steak or some large hearty meal to project this view of, no, I'm not managing my weight like you think I am. I don't know if you caught some of that discussion.
3: Absolutely, and I mean that. I think that just shows us how powerful these, you know, these food stereotypes, these codes are. That people either feel like they have to embrace them, or they feel like they have to really publicly, you know, subvert them. Um, To me, it's really, it's it's really fascinating because I think that we have to realize that we don't eat in a cultural vacuum. You know, we might think that we're making these choices to show who we are, but in so many ways, our choices are constrained. I mean, for example. One thing that you have to think about when you're teaching a college class about food is food insecurity. So in that instance, what you eat doesn't tell you who you are, but maybe it tells you about the kind of society you live in and how it's structured in a way to make sure some people have enough food and some people don't.
2: Yeah. So is what we're talking about now, is that gastronomy, or h- how do you define it when, when you're working, you know, either in your own research or with your students? Is, is, is kind of that cultural conversation we're having, is that part of gastronomy, or is it something different?
3: I think that's such a great question, and it's something that I think I, I need to ponder more, maybe even ponder with my students, um, because gastronomy isn't actually a term that I regularly use. I know it has a lot of resonance for some people, and it's certainly used to frame the missions of organizations that I deeply admire, I mean, starting, of course, with the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Um, You also mentioned Megan Elias, and she directs, of course, Boston University's wonderful gastronomy program. So um, it's certainly a word that, that seems fitting for many and an umbrella that seems fitting for many. So, I mean, I suppose you've already kind of defined it in a broad way. Gastronomy, I think, relates to the study of food and culture. And absolutely, I do that. So in that sense, there's no doubt I do gastronomy. Um, But I guess when I think about gastronomy, I sometimes think that there's kind of an implicit kind of hierarchy sometimes, that sometimes gastronomy also involves an interest in figuring out what's good food. Um, and thinking about food as a source of aesthetic beauty and pleasure. And I know gastronomists um, of every stripe are sophisticated and know that what's good and what's beautiful are cultural and contextual, and I'm really interested in those questions too. But I think maybe where I part ways from maybe what would be gastronomy, and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, is I'm also interested in studying the food habits of people who don't care about food, (laughs) who are really indifferent about their food. And in our food-obsessed culture, we're knowing a lot about food as a form of cultural capital. It's a way people show they're sophisticated. Um, I think we sometimes presume that everybody spends a lot of time and effort thinking about what they eat and In my research, I'm not sure it's always true. So I'm also interested in people who just eat to stay alive and don't really derive much pleasure or a sense of identity from what they eat. And I'm also interested in studying the experiences of people who don't have enough food, people who are hungry. And it's really harder for me to fit hungry under that umbrella of gastronomy.
2: Well, I think that's very fair, and I think that's a great point. I do think that there's maybe it's just because it's a highfalutin sound and word is there's you know it does imply sophistication in its meaning, but I think at the foundation we would say that our interest in 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 gastronomy as a field is exactly what you say is food and culture, and food and culture as you also say extends to. Um, Everything about even those people who are choosing not to eat or disinterested in eating, or th- or their main action is is in, or main interest is not about what's on the plate, but about like for instance animal welfare or plant based. So so we would look at the whole thing, but I think that's a valid point because for instance one thing we don't focus on at the foundation is hunger, um, because hunger tends to relate a little bit more to poverty and resource allocation. And there's also a lot of hunger organizations because it's so fundamental and it's, you know, tugs at people's heartstrings as a must do, whereas that higher level hierarchy that you're describing gastronomy for a lot of people just doesn't seem as urgent. Yeah. So that that's our point of view on yeah. it. Yeah.
3: No, I think I think that's really interesting. And how gastronomy can be in dialogue as a concept with these other kinds of things and other kinds of organizations is, is kind of fascinating. And I guess what's interesting, I guess as work as a scholar is in a way you have to bridge these different discussions you know bring hunger to gastronomy maybe bring gastronomy to hunger because just because people are hungry doesn't mean that they don't have ideas about what they wish they could eat or what food ideal food is right so maybe it's the conversation the dialectic about these things that would be interesting
2: well, I think that's perfect timing for you know a couple of weeks. We're honoring Jose Andres with the Julia Child Award, and we had Jose on the podcast. And, and we didn't talk about this in conversation with him, but I think if you watch his information of what he's sending out from the work there, his charity, World Central Kitchen, is doing in the Bahamas right now, he's moved toward emphasizing, we are making these people culturally specific, real food that, you know, he mentions pigeon peas and other dishes that I haven't heard before, but sound honestly delicious. And whoever talks about disaster meals is yeah. sounding delicious. And right, that's exactly what he's addressing, which who's to say that in a disaster people need to eat, you know, bologna sandwiches only?
3: I think that's incredibly powerful, because there is something about treating people as objects of food pity that's condescending, right? And to validate that people have cultural traditions and desires and aesthetic sensibility who might be in a crisis or a moment of need is really powerful. So I think that's a wonderful illustration.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree. So given all of this and what we've been talking about, and given that I think the—well, I don't know how old it is, you can tell us, but the, this coming together of food studies, both within the history department at UNT and, as you said, broadly across other departments, and now that we've funded this this doctoral fellowship, what's kind of your hope and aspiration that will emerge maybe in the near future out of food studies and the food studies fellowship at at, at UNT?
3: Um, yeah, so uh, I would say for about 10 years we've been working to build sort of this this working group around food studies, and we've finally gathered a lot of momentum. You know, we have some curricular things now. We have a food study certificate. Um, in the Department of History, our concentration in food studies or food history is quite new. So we are incredibly grateful for the support of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I mean, you came in right at the beginning. I mean, the first year that somebody could study food history in our department, we were able to have a Julia Child Foundation fellow. Um, So in our department in history, we have nine people with a teaching or research interest related to food. And that's an extraordinary number of people for um, a history department. I mean, it's incredible. And um, you know, I could talk about my colleagues' work all day, but I won't. <laughs> I mean, if you're interested in, in reading about us, you could at history.unt.edu. Um, but just kind of in summary, let me tell you sort of a little teaser that I have colleagues who are studying things as varied as street vendors in modern Mexico To food in British colonial armies, to Native American cuisine, to public policy about nutrition, to food in the Middle East. And um, what's really so powerful about the support of the foundation, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts, is that that name recognition, you know, having Julia Child's name on something has drawn so much attention to us and to the remarkable work that we are already doing. So people who might not have have noticed us before certainly are now. Um, One of the things I think that's really powerful about our opportunity here in Texas is that UNT is a very diverse majority-minority campus. And it's in a region without any other food studies research centers. And we have this top-notch faculty, you know, very accomplished, very well-published faculty who can train students. So we realize that we have an opportunity to serve students who might not have the chance or the inclination to go study somewhere like NYU, you know, which has an incredible food studies program. So there's an enormous population interested in thinking about food that we can serve, that haven't been served before. So, I mean, we're just thrilled and delighted about that. And let me just say that um, the fellow that we welcome this year, Joshua Lopez, is outstanding. Um, he's somebody to watch out for. He came to us after having earned a master's degree studying with the great food studies scholar Meredith Abarca, who teaches at the University of Texas, El Paso. And Josh is interested in studying some of these topics we've been talking about before earlier related to food and identity construction. And what he's particularly interested in thinking about is about in the history of queer Latinx ways of eating and thinking about food. So he's, de- like I said, definitely someone whose work is, you should watch out for because he's a wonderful writer and he knows how to tell stories that um, can reach a broad audience and connect with lots of people's experiences
2: well that's of course very gratifying to hear and was was our interest in when we were approached about helping support the program because i think that a lot of food studies thinking tends to be quite coastal and trying to find other voices and people coming from other perspectives. And obviously Texas has a a very rich food culture. As I was explaining in London when someone was talking about chili as a Mexican mm-hmm. dish. I was like, well, well no, actually, no no <laughs> that's, not, that's not where it comes from. But if that but that's how you might think about it. There there's a relationship. But um and I would have no idea what queer Latinx food is like or about but i'm fascinated to know so we look forward to to, to seeing the result as as josh gets farther along in his, his his research
3: yeah it's exciting
2: all right we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to explore gastronomy african-american culinary history and southern foodways with professor wallach stay with us we'll be right back
1: This episode is supported by Bonbon, bon, a charming neighborhood bistro in Lawrence, Kansas, serving eclectic cuisine with Midwest roots. Bonbon bon is a place for friends and neighbors to come together and enjoy good food, good drinks, and good company. The heart of Bonbon bon is filled with love for the community of Lawrence, Kansas, for the staff and suppliers that put food on the table, for quality local ingredients, and for fun, creative dishes. Learn more at bonbonlawrence.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content. And bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org gala.
2: Welcome back. We're talking to Culinary History with Professor Jennifer Jensen Wallach from the University of North Texas. So, Jennifer, we've for many episodes have actually had this conversation, although we don't usually have a lot of time to get very far with it, but exploring how the role of African Americans have helped define American food, which to me is a little bit of rewriting what the narrative of that people at least my age, might have been middle-aged, would be talking—have learned in school from from the sort of mnemonics of American history. So, you know, as an African-American historian, in your work, have have you also seen this narrative evolving? And um, actually, to just put it another way, why did a pork chop need to be dethroned?
3: <laughs> oh, boy. Um Okay, so, so this is this is the challenge, you know. Now we're talking about my work, so I'm going to have um, to, to edit a little bit all the wonderful things I could say about this really rich topic. I mean, there's no question that African Americans, like Native Americans, like many other groups, have not received sufficient cultural credit or, very importantly, sufficient financial rewards for being one of the co-creators of An American Way of Eating. But I think that we're living in actually a kind of exciting intellectual and cultural moment where we're seeing a lot of food studies scholars, but also activists and chefs asking people to grapple with these questions about where our way of eating came from, who created it, and really always very important, who's being rewarded for it, you know, who's getting the recognition. Um, So it's a really exciting time to be doing what I do. So my work um, has been interested in highlighting the complexity of black food traditions, because I think to the extent that sort of the public writ large is thinking about black food traditions, they're probably thinking about them in kind of a a stereotypical way. They're thinking about things like the concept of Southern-derived soul food. Um, which is a powerful food, you know, it's a wonderful, you know, way of eating. There's lots of adherence to it, and there's lots of, you know, deeply embedded and culturally resonant stories in soul food because, of course, it connects to slavery and deprivation. And food was used as a way to, you know, have cultural continuity with Africa, to build community, to survive, so there's so much about the soul food story that's, that's rich and resonant, and you know it sh- does deserve the recognition that it gets. But one of the things that I've wanted to think about in my own research is about different African-American food stories that, that coexisted with or that challenged this really powerful soul food narrative. So, for example, in my recent book, Every Nation Has Its Dish, I think about the food habits of early 20th century middle-class African-Americans who basically wanted to eat anything but food that they associated with slavery. And that's actually where dethroning the deceitful pork chop um, that you alluded to earlier came from. That's a title of a book that I edited And what probably surprises people that know anything about African-American history is I'm quoting in that that book title from the great African-American intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote in the Crisis magazine, the magazine of the NAACP in the early 20th century, that we need to dethrone the deceitful pork chop. So what he's saying is that we need to eat in a different way, a way more befitting a freed people, a way that has um, less association with the food ways of deprivation of the South, um, which is often symbolized in foods like pork and corn. So we see middle-class food reformers during the early 20th century saying, hey, we should be eating things that are American. I'm putting this in quotes, but things like beef and wheat. Um, we want to eat processed, factory-made, modern foods um, because we are free, high-status people, and this is this is how people like us eat.
2: Well, and that's so fascinating because I feel like what what I'm learning and hearing more from from different both research and writing and resurgence and interest in who Edna Lewis was, that what the new narrative seems to be saying is not necessarily erasing soul food at all, but saying what are dishes that Americans, many Americans, particularly Southern Americans, eat, have their their grounding in slavery, and they're not always from deprivation because they might have been food that or dishes that slaves made for um, the people in the big house and then became incorporated and are actually more universal or more universal in their origin. So it's interesting that at one point, which makes sense to sort of, differentiate yourselves and, and and become less connected to stereotypes, you would move toward, you know, beef and apple pie or things of prosperity, but that actually they're more, I guess what I'm saying is, are they more inherently intertwined?
3: Oh, I mean, def- absolutely. But I mean, one po- important thing to mention about somebody like Du Bois is, he's from Massachusetts. Right, so, I think sometimes we make the African American food story a Southern story, which it is in lots of ways, but again, that's kind of an oversimplification and I mean, I'm glad you brought up Edna Lewis because she illustrates the complexity of this so well, like she didn't identify with this idea of soul food, which you know is kind of tends to be fried, sort of greasy, very carbohydrate, um heavy food. she called it hard times in Harlem food. Where in her mind, Southern food was, you know, it was fresher and lighter and brighter. So she kind of would say that the stereotype isn't reflective, I guess, but that's kind of what you're saying. Um, but I also think that um, there is something to this, this rejection of soul food and the food of slavery that um, goes beyond that moment of wanting to eat the beef and the, you know, apple pie, as you said. I think that's a good illustration. But we also see this thread of a different group of African Americans who I've been really interested in studying. And this is a group of radical black vegetarians in the 60s and 70s who rejected the soul food diet, who rejected, frankly, the standard American diet in any incarnation, because they associated meat eating with slavery, with violence, with domination, with bad health. So they worked really hard to carve out a different understanding of what proper foods of black people should be and it's it's a vegetarian understanding. Um so that that's one narrative that I think gets kind of overlooked.
2: And I also wanted to ask you, you were you a co-editor of a University of Arkansas Press food and food waste series book called American Appetites. And I think bro- just broadening the conversation a little, could you share some of the favorite insights that, that you got out of editing that book about American, whether it's African-American or American eating habits in general?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, since I've been talking a lot about African-American food ways, maybe I'll try to, um, This this book is a little bit broader. I mean, African-American foodways are American foodways, but um, let me sort of, maybe I'll just give you a few examples, maybe from a few different centuries. Um, This reader tells American food stories from European contact, um, more or less to the present. So maybe I'll just give you a little, I mean, you can't avoid puns, but just bear with me, taste of the book. Sure. So, okay. We, so, we allow lots of puns on this podcast. Yeah, it's, it's unavoidable. It is totally unavoidable. I mean, I try to strike them out of my writing, but, you know, I can't. No editorial pen is, is rigorous enough to get rid of puns and food writing and talking about food. Um, but let me start with um, one of the documents that kind of stayed with me um, for a long time. And that's a 1623 letter that we published from an indentured servant who was in Virginia. Um, he come from England. And this really powerful letter, he's begging his parents, first of all, to buy him out of his contract. <laughs> you know, he says he's sick, he's hungry, he's working incredibly hard. Virginia's like the worst place he's ever been. He can't imagine a worse place. Please buy him out of his contract. He says he's only been eating gruel, and what he says that he gets occasionally a mouthful of bread and beef, despite the fact that he's performing this unrelenting, really hard physical labor. But then what's really interesting to me is the letter takes a turn. You know, he's saying, I'm miserable, I'm sick, I'm dying, get me out of here. But then he says, if you can't get me out of here, could you send me some food so I could sell it? So what he's basically saying is the food there is so terrible that if his parents will just send him some beef and some vinegar and some cheese, he could sell it for a profit and send back to them. So he's very enterprising. Um, But what's really poignant about this, and I think reveals so much about how difficult that experience was, he does say to his parents that if they send the food, but he dies before the food comes, he's already arranged for someone else to pay for the food if he can't do it. So I think that document shows us, doesn't it, how much we can learn about our past and about past realities from centering food. So well, want-
2: and I'm also struck by the fact that that doesn't get discussed as more, even with climate change, how North America is such a punishing climate. It is such a harder place environmentally, even though it's fertile, to live than Europe. The climate is much more severe, the chances of tornadoes or hurricanes or earthquakes so much stronger that I think that gets, gets overlooked sometimes about just how difficult it was to settle America and and to remain there
3: yeah absolutely especially if you're the one who's you know clearing the forest as this person probably was right <laughs> so
2: okay so moving from what you I think it was 1623 are yeah. you can you leap where do you leapfrog to from there in, in, in and okay. and what stands out
3: how about two more So how about a 19th century and a 21st century to sort of, you know, I mean, I'm skipping a lot, but but let me leap a little bit. So another document that I think is really surprising to my students, and was really surprising to me, is an excerpt we published from a book published in 1878 by a man named T.D. Duncan called How to Be Plump, or Talks on Physiological Feeding. So I think this again shows us how our kind of unthinking understanding of the past is we don't really realize that ideas about beauty and body size and what a healthy body looks like have changed over time. I mean, now we kind of, despite all those actresses you're talking about, showing how they eat all this, you know, um, fattening food, I think we idealize very, very thin bodies now. But that wasn't the case in the late 19th century. So Duncan is writing in a moment when actress and singer Lillian Russell, who weighed 200 pounds, was considered like the beauty, the person you wanted to look like. So this was a moment where women wanted large busts and hips and, you know, a tiny waist that was an artificially tiny waist, you know, constricted by a corset. So in this book, How to Be Plump, Duncan actually says, leanness is a disease. Okay, so opposite of how we think about things today. And he advised his readers on what they should eat in order to become fleshy. So... Well, the thing that does stay the same is that you know his female readers then as now are told you know that they need to do something different to their bodies in order to be beautiful, but the advice about what a body should look like was completely different.
2: Yes. No. Well, that's fascinating, right? It's only in an age of plenty where thinness could be revered. It was always different before because thinness was a reflection of poverty. You know.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so last one to sort of round out the collection is a um, document that we published, which is um, an excerpt from a 2012 blog post written by historian and food writer James McWilliams, which is called No Dog, Hot Dog, Good Dog. So it's a brilliant um, blog posting because McWilliams as a historian reflects on the American hot dog which he, he's a wonderful writer. He, he says that it's made out of slaughterhouse refuse that makes pink slime look like health food. And he goes on to say, you know, very sarcastically, leave it to Americans to glorify this waste receptacle as all American food, food that must roll off the grill and adulterate the plate of every red-blooded American on the 4th of July. So he's questioning, you know, why would this this food that he says is disgusting why has it become this american symbol you know why would we celebrate this thing that he says is pretty gross so he then goes on to talk about what must have been a trend in 2012 i, I think i missed out on this trend but he talks about a trend for golem, gourmet hot dogs um trend uh, does that does that ring a bell with you do you remember a moment where gourmet hot dogs were really popular
2: um, no, but I am not a big hot dog fan. You're, so you're with James James Williams ignored. on this. You're with him on this.
3: Well, he's talking about all these chefs making hot dogs topped with kimchi and caramelized onions and mangoes and all kinds of stuff. So, what he goes on to suggest is that Americans should eat hot dog less hot dogs. So, what he says Americans should eat is, you know, the bun with these really nice toppings, saying that this would be better for the environment, it would be better for animals, and it would be much more appetizing. And then he ends with his summary about what he thinks American food is. And he says, fundamentally, American food is endlessly adaptable. And in fact, he says, it's so adaptable that something like a meatless hot dog, a hot dog with just the toppings, might actually work in a food culture this flexible and this dynamic. So I thought that was a wonderful way to end the collection. It encapsulates a lot.
2: And sorry, where is he a British historian? Where is he from?
3: He's not British, actually. He's actually um, he's actually in Texas. Him, um, he's he's um, at Texas State.
2: Oh, I see. So he's an American historian, or he's an American being critical of, of America. American culinary yeah. traditions.
3: Correct, correct. He's an insider. So yeah, so yeah. I know we bristle when outsiders criticize us, but yes, he's a he's a red blooded American criticizing the hot dog. So he has a he's he's able to right. He has the right. He's an insider.
2: Well I think that's pretty fascinating in terms of where we're getting to with the impossible burger and those kind of artificial plant-based meats cuz I'm I'm I have to admit to being on the fence between if you're not going to eat something just don't eat it but all these, this effort into recreating foods, into standing in for other foods. So I was wondering about, well, should we have a plant-based hot dog or is that as equally gr- going to be as equally gross as a regular hot dog? Because you have to put so many strange things in it to, you, do you know what I mean? I don't know if you ever think about that, but I always wonder, is it better just, if you don't want to eat something, don't eat it and stick with other things that occur more naturally than this huge amount of effort and investment to make, essentially fake meat.
3: Yeah, I think that's that's another topic in and of itself. But I mean, you're kind of you're kind of talking about you know an issue near and dear to my heart because I have to say one of the ironic things that's happened to me is the more I've studied about food, the less food I eat. <laughs> so after learning a lot about our food system, I've started eating a plant based diet, and I kind of took the approach that you're talking about first, where I just ate things you know plants. But the longer I've been not eating meat, the more I've kind of missed it. So I have to say that these things like the Beyond Burger, I've I've kind of met them is kind of you know, a revelation that some of those pleasures that I remembered from the past I get to still have, and you know, no animals die. So um, I don't know, but I, I think it's an interesting thing to, to to think about and tease out what that means. Um, Carol J. Adams just wrote this amazing book called Burger. Um, where she talks about the history of the American burger, and she talks about, you know, the beef burger, but she also talks about all of these various veggie burgers, and she ends talking about sort of the impossible burger and um, the beyond meat burger. And she kind of ends up sort of where James McWilliams is with this sort of adaptive, expansive idea about what these foods are. You know, and a burger can be all of these things, and all of these things can be American, which I think is kind of beautiful.
2: Well, I think that's a perfect point to... Pause the conversation. And as you say, that's a topic that could be an entire episode episode. So we'll, we'll stop there and, and say um, to our listeners, let us know what you think. Have we improved your understanding from this conversation of what gastronomy is or can be? And also let us know what your favorite new factoid about American eating habits is to add to the ones we've just discussed. So send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org to tell us And after the rake, Professor Wallach's going to reveal her Julia moment. We'll be right back.
1: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up. And if you're alone in the kitchen,
2: who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call The Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Jennifer, your turn. What's your Julia Moment?
3: Okay, well, my Julia Moment involves reading my life in France. I read it when I was in graduate school in the late 1990s, Um, and even though now I'm kind of, you know, thinking about I'm not sure if gastronomy describes what I do or doesn't animate my thinking so much today, it definitely animated my thinking then. I lived in a city of Boston. I spent lots of time lunching and shopping and cooking and was really interested in culinary rules and, you know, thinking about food culture and what it said about who I was, who I wanted to be. Um But I was also at this moment um, working on a Ph.D., as I said, and I was working on a Ph.D. actually in African-American studies. That's what my Ph.D. is in. I was also in a relationship with a partner who came from a very wealthy family and was really interested in making money and in climbing the corporate ladder. I mean, that's how I could afford this fancy food. (laughs) Most graduate students probably aren't lunching in Boston as much as I was. So, um, you know, he, he was bankrolling this fascination. Um, but it became clear and clearer that he kind of thought my doctoral work was kind of a hobby more than a viable occupation, um, not something that would be the center of our life. Um, so it became clear that he thought I would get this Ph.D., but he wasn't going to follow me to a job at an obscure college. He certainly wasn't going to follow me somewhere like Texas. Um, so this, you know, was a weird moment when I read My Life in France. And there were parts of it that really resonated with me. Um, Julia's enthusiasm for food, of course, resonated with me, but also her unflagging belief that her passions were worthwhile and worth pursuing. Um, There's a moment in the memoir where she writes about signing up for a cooking class, and she's really distraught when she's placed in the class for housewives. Um, with two women who are way less serious about mastering the art of cooking than she is. It's not going to be this cerebral, intellectual, serious undertaking for these other women. So she quits the class, and instead she signs up for a professional class, where she's the only woman learning alongside 11 men, all former GIs. So I, I just love the description of that. And the class is in a basement, and she writes... As the only woman in the basement, I was careful to keep up the appearance of sweet, good humor around the boys. But inside, I was cool and intensely focused on absorbing as much as possible. So I loved the way that she wore the mask she needed to survive, you know, to society said, women don't do this thing, but she was doing it anyway. But inside, she was completely undaunted. She was going to pursue her passion. She was going to become who she was meant to be. And at the moment, I was kind of being pressured to take the housewife track myself. (laughs) So Julia's story really resonated with me, and it really inspired me. And frankly, I think anybody who's done something outside of the expectations that they felt like society had for them can probably identify with how Julia negotiated those things. And in her case, she did so with such extraordinary results.
2: That's so lovely. Thank you very much for um, bringing that part of my life in France to life. And and it's fascinating to hear how, how it resonated with you and brought you to where you are full circle now. It
3: did. It did.
2: Thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thanks so much for having me. And thanks so much for letting me share a little bit about what we're doing at UNT.
2: Well, we're really glad you could. And thanks, everyone else, for listening. To get up to speed on the University of North Texas and its culinary history program, search for it at UNT History on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter. And you can also visit, as Jennifer mentioned, history.unt.edu. To help you stay up to speed on all things gastronomic, we're at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child, J-C-F, and I'm at T-Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network is at long last, again, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New Friend Torn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really does help new listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that helps all the more. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen.